You know, I, I absolutely love this time of year. I really do, the Christmas season. And whether we want to admit it or not, Christmas a lot of times resolves around the the giving and receiving of gifts. I mean, we spend a good chunk of our December on Amazon or going to the mall buying presents, and on December 25th, we're gonna sit around a tree or wherever we do, and we're gonna hand and give gifts to people that we love. And what I love about Beyond is it ultimately brings us back to what matters most in life. It causes us to think about, man, this Christmas, what truly matters? Because I don't know about you, but I I spent a good amount of money on plastic toys for my children that probably won't make it to the end of the year. (laughs) They will be broken or my kids will honestly get tired of them and want something else. And what I love about our church is we choose this time of year to invest in something that will will last, the hope of the gospel. And man, I've been to Mara Mara, and the one thing in the midst of this barren wilderness where there's not a lot to be hoped about, they have hope. And thank you, Northridge Church, and ultimately Jesus, for bringing that hope to them, because it matters. It matters, and so wow, what an amazing story of what God has done through your generosity, through this church, to bring hope to somewhere, to people we will never actually meet. That's what the gospel is all about. Well, can you believe it? We're three days away. Three days away. Some of you, you're like, boom, let's bring it on. Some of you, sheer panic has just set in. You can feel the sweat right now. But whether we are ready or not, Christmas is three days away. And here's what that means, is some of you, you're gonna be packing suitcases because you're gonna be going and visiting family. Or some of you, you're gonna be vacuuming your floors and sweeping up and getting everything nice and pretty because family's coming into town. For me and my family, it means we're gonna have about 10 toddlers and about 20 people for the next couple days, almost a week, in my house. It's gonna be wild and crazy, but there's something about the holidays, man. When family comes in town, it's, it's beautiful. You get to catch up with the family that lives far away. You get to have those conversations. It's awesome being with family. But as many of you know, family can also be pretty messy. You've got that aunt or uncle that is just really awkward and says those crazy things. You have those moments in the games that you shouldn't play, but you always play where it gets heated and someone gets into a fight. You have those passive aggressive comments that you make about the present your mom gave you that you don't really like and you want her to know. But we all know when family comes to town, it's awesome, it's amazing, but it can also be pretty messy. And speaking of family, for the last couple weeks, we started a series called Picture Perfect Family, where we've been kind of zooming into Jesus' genealogy, his origin, his family, more specifically, the women in their story, and their stories. And here's what we found is, man, Jesus' family makes us feel good about our family, doesn't it? I mean, like, you look at their stories, and you're like, wow, my family isn't that crazy. Look at Jesus's. We've talked about week one. The first member in Jesus' family was a prostitute, Rahab, but yet she's this amazing picture of what faith really is. And then last week, you probably hopefully forgot about last week, Tamar's story, this really weird, awkward sexual story that you were like, wow, I have to answer all these questions from my kids now. But we looked at Tamar's story and we realized that God can take any circumstance and use it for his glory and his purpose. 
And today we're going to continue in this series as we look at the third woman in Jesus' lineage. We pick up her story and we're introduced to her kind of in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. It says this, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, it's kind of weird that her name is not mentioned. Matthew 1 is a genealogy of Jesus, but it only describes this woman as Uriah's wife. And you gotta ask the question, why is that? And I actually think her story alludes to the answer. So if you got your Bibles, 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, we can provide one for you. It's gonna be on page 247. We're really gonna be in two chapters today, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. So kind of keep your fingers ready. And as you kind of get there, I wanna just quickly welcome you to Northridge Church, to all of our campuses. We're one church and four campuses. And so to our campuses, welcome. Those of you who are watching online, kind of all over the place. We want to welcome you as well. And I just want to say again, Merry Christmas to everybody. Thanks for being here this morning. And I really want to challenge us before we dive into the message this morning. Two days from now, we're going to be celebrating Christmas Eve. It's a huge opportunity in the life of our church. And I want to issue really two challenges to the people who call Northridge Church home. The first one is if you're in town, man, be here. It's going to be a great chance for all of us to come together as families. We're going to laugh a little bit. We're going to be challenged a little bit. And it's just going to be a focus on why Christmas is really important. And so I want to challenge you to do that. But also, I want to challenge you to invite. We've printed a ton of invite cards because this is a huge opportunity for all of us. There's a crazy part. People who really don't want to have anything to do with God, for some reason, Two times a year, Easter and Christmas, they're open to the God conversation. And so, man, let's just be bold in the next couple of days, whether it's in our neighborhood, in our workplaces, in our schools, wherever God has us to grab some invite cards on your way out today and just invite people. Say, hey, would, I would love to have you celebrate with us this Christmas. So I'd encourage you to do that. Okay, so let's take a look at Jesus' third woman, the woman in his gene- genealogy. We pick up our story in 2 Samuel Chapter 11, it starts here. Here's the context. It says, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the the roof of the palace. So here we're kind of given the context of the story. We're introduced to a guy named David, maybe one of the most famous persons in the Bible. It's King David. This is the ruler of the nation of Israel. He is the king of Israel, and he is on his roof. Now, Just to give you a little more context, David should actually be at war. He sent his entire army away to battle. Normally, a king would lead them into battle, but for some reason, David decided to stay home. And I know what you're thinking, like, okay, up to this point in in Jesus' genealogy, we've talked about two ordinary women. Two, two women who really aren't even Israelites, and now we're, we're talking about the genealogy of Jesus, the king of kings. And so you have to think that somebody like Jesus had to have some nobility, some royalty in his family, and now it's here, okay? King David, all right, here we go. We're getting into like the, the really important people of Jesus' genealogy. But the problem is, is in this story, David is actually not going to be the hero. He's going to be the scoundrel. And we'll see this right next in the story. It says this, from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba. There's her name, no pun intended. The daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her and she came to him 
and he slept with her. So David's on the roof of his palace. He sees this beautiful woman. Her name is Bathsheba. And she is beautiful, she's gorgeous, and right from the get-go, David sees her. If you've been to Israel, this is not some weird thing. This is kind of the landscape, how houses were built. His kingdom would have been elevated high. He's on the roof looking down, and he sees this woman. And David lusts after her. He wants her, he desires her, he figures out who she is, and he sends for Bathsheba to come back to the palace to fulfill his desires. And again, you have to understand the culture. And what often happens in this story is because we're so familiar with David that we almost have to get our minds rewired to look at this story from a different perspective. Because today, although David is gonna be mentioned, we wanna look at this story through the lens of not David, but Bathsheba. So here she is on a normal day, probably going through her regular routines, and all of a sudden, soldiers or messengers come to her and say, the king wants you. Now remember, this is the king of Israel. What the king wants, the king gets. Nobody says no to King David. And so Bathsheba has absolutely no say in the matter. She can fight all she wants. She's going to see the king. And so she follows them to the palace. And it's interesting that the text says that he, David, slept with her. You see, what this was was an abuse of power. This was David taking his position and his authority to a whole nother level and forcing a woman to do something whether she wanted to or not. You see, it wouldn't be a stretch in our culture today to call this what it is, rape. You see, it was a forcing. It's like the boss in the office saying, hey, if you want to keep your job, you know what to do. That is ultimately what David is doing. And we start Bathsheba's story under the worst of circumstances where she's taken advantage of, where she's abused and ultimately forced to sleep with the king. So... It happens and they separate their ways. David is, lust is fulfilled and Bathsheba has to deal with the baggage of the story, but it gets even more complicated. It says this, now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. And so the story gets really complicated because Bathsheba is now carrying a, 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 a viable being in her stomach from her abuser. So she sends word to David, I'm pregnant, and David is baffled by this. He's worried because now his sin is gonna be public. There's no getting around it anymore, and so David comes up with these schemes to figure it out. He brings Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, back from war. He's at war doing what he's supposed to. He comes back. David says, sleep with your wife, man. Relax. You've been fighting for a long time. Sleep with your wife. Uriah's like, no, my guys are fighting in battle. How can I go sleep with my wife? So David tries to get him smashed drunk. Doesn't work. He still won't sleep with her. And so he gives a note to, to Joab, the commander of the, of the army of Israel. Uriah delivers this message. And here's what it simply says. Put Uriah at the front of the lines of battle. Pull back and watch him die. So David, to cover up his sin, like we often do, he has Uriah murdered. And guess who gets to hear the news? Verse 26, his wife, it says, when Uriah's wife, that's Bathsheba, heard that her husband was dead, she mourned him. And for a second, just, just, just let's step into Bathsheba's shoes. 
As impossible as this might be, we're gonna try. This is her story. She is taken advantage of by the king of Israel. The man who's supposed to protect her and lead her takes advantage of her. Can you imagine what is is swirling around in her head? The shame of like, man, what if Uriah finds out about this? I didn't want to do it, but I I had no choice. But she's feeling the guilt and shame of of what feels like adultery, even though she didn't have a say in the matter. She's dealing with uh, carrying a, a baby that really she didn't plan for. Oh, yeah. And now she finds out her husband is dead. We don't know if she knows if David had him killed or not. All she knows and that we know is that he's gone. So she's been taken advantage of, she's carrying her abuser's baby, and now she has to mourn her husband's death. Who would wanna walk in those shoes? And what's crazy is you, you think about our culture today, this isn't like something that's thousands of years ago. Honestly, the, the abuse of power and people being taken advantage of based off their position and stuff like this is just normative to our culture today. It doesn't, it's not hard for us to relate to this story at some level because we see it on the news. We see it all over the place of people taking their position and using it to gain after their own desires. So Bathsheba's story to us is not hard to relate to. And some of you, you, you know what it feels like to be in Bathsheba, Bathsheba's shoes because you've walked on that journey. You've felt the pain that she, has, she is feeling. You've dealt with the shame and guilt that she's walking through. All because of David. Nowhere in the Bible do we get any indication that Bathsheba deserved this because of her choices. Nowhere does it say God is punishing her for what she did, what was wrong. In fact, the Bible specifically locates on David. Verse 27, we we think David does something to make it easier. Verse 27, it says this, after the time of mourning was over, so she's done grieving her husband. So David had brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So this is where when we look at the story from David's perspective, we think, wow, he's trying to smooth things over a little bit. Even though he took advantage of her, even though he had her husband killed, at least he brings her into his house and and is going to take care of her, right? And so we think from David's perspective, this is a good move. But again, let's look at the story through Bathsheba's lens. Now she has to live and be married to her abuser. I mean, who would want that? Honestly, from Bathsheba's perspective, this isn't good news. Like, oh, hey, you took advantage of me and now I have to be married to you and now I have to live in your presence where I don't feel safe, where I feel like at any moment you could do that again? For Bathsheba, this isn't good news at all. This is, wow, now I have to live with my abuser and be constantly reminded of the things that you did to me and the position you put me in. Can you imagine what Bathsheba is walking through? David, and all that he has done is costing her greatly, and it's about to get worse. Because the Bible says that the thing David had done displeased God, and there would be consequences for it. And so God sends a, a prophet named Nathan to David, and da- Nathan tells David this story. He, says, uh, he tells a story of two men, a, a really poor man who has one little lamb. And that lamb was loved by this poor man. It was like a pet to him. And then there's a rich man who has vast cattle and this rich man decides to throw a party. 
And instead of serving up any of his livestock, he takes this poor man's little lamb and he serves it up for dinner. And David is hearing this story from the prophet Nathan and he is fuming. In fact, the Bible says this, it says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. David has no clue he's talking about himself. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then verse seven, it says this, then Nathan said to David, you're the guy. This is exactly, David, what you did to Uriah and Bathsheba. And because of it, David, there will be consequences. Here's the problem. The consequences just don't affect David they hit Bathsheba as well. Because Nathan leaves, and look what happens. Verse 15 of chapter 12, it says this, after Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child of Uriah's wife that had been born to David, and he became ill. And on the seventh day, the child died. Oh, man. This is Bathsheba's story. Remember, this is the family of Jesus. She's been abused by her king, She's pregnant with his child. He kills her husband. And now the baby that she gave to David is dead. And none of this is her fault. None of this is consequences of her actions, but she's this innocent bystander to all of David's sin. And none of us would ever want to walk through a story like this. In fact, as the story continues, she gives birth to a second son. His name is Solomon. And at the end of her story, she has to fight with David, the guy who abused her. She has to fight with David to get him to name Solomon king of Israel, ultimately in the line of Jesus. Man, we, we look at this story, and yet again, it's almost, it's almost kind of similar to Tamar's story. At the end of it, we're like, wow, why in the world would we read this, and how in the world can we learn from this? Especially like from David's side of the story, there's a lot to learn. Like, hey, your sin is gonna crush you. Don't live this way. But how do we learn from Bathsheba's side of the story when she didn't do anything wrong, she didn't make any mistakes, and yet she still has to deal with all the pain of David's sin? And I think there is some things that we can learn. And today it's gonna, I just kind of wanna tell you where we're going. It's gonna start discouraging, but it's gonna end somewhere, okay? Because when you look at her story, there's one word that screams out to all of us, it's pain. Bathsheba's story is full of pain. And here's here's what I know about my life and your life. At some level, whether it's really small or whether it's really large, our circumstances are going to look different than Bathsheba's, but every single one of us knows that word, pain. We've dealt with it whether it's small or big in life, we've all experienced pain in life. It's just a reality, and, and because of that truth, and in the world we live in, here's, what, here's the conclusion that we all can come to, is we can't expect a life without pain. I told you, it's not gonna start encouraging. <laughs> you, you came to church this morning to gather as the church, you came to a church building or a movie theater or a school, and you hoped on Christmas, you're like, man, I, I'm excited, there's hope this Christmas. And I'm like, hey, guess what, guys? Here's what we're gonna learn today. You're gonna experience pain. Wow, good news, right? But that's just the truth. 
I, I wish the Bible offered this magical potion or some magic spell that we could all take in. It would sound more like a cult, man. But if we could just take this magical spell and be void of pain, that would be awesome. I wish that was the truth. I wish the Bible offered that to us. But here on earth, it just doesn't. We're, we have to know that life is full of pain. Bathsheba's story was full of pain. Why? So my first question to that point is why? And I'm gonna give you two answers today. Why can we know that pain's gonna be a reality in life? The first and the, the most profound answer to this is one three-letter word called sin. Sin, three letters that packs a punch. Do you realize today that every bad thing in life that you don't want to experience, every turmoil, heartache, pain, tear that you shed comes and is rooted in these three little letters? Sin. Sin is just disobedience to God. Sin jacks everything up. It messes everything up. I mean, we know this because we're all sinners. And we felt the sting and the weight of our sin. And let me walk through whose sin I'm talking about. There's three whose sins. The first one, it starts at the very beginning. We talked a little bit about this in Tamar's story. Adam's sin. The first sin of humanity when God created the world in Genesis perfectly. And Adam chose to disobey God. He rebelled against him. And what that did was it changed the course of the world as we know it. It cursed it by sin. And therefore that means pain and turmoil. We all get to deal with it because of Adam's sin. But Adam started the journey and we just continued in it. Because you and I, the Bible clearly states in Romans 3, it says, for all have sinned. You, me, all of us, we're all sinners and we've fallen short. We've all rebelled against God's standard. So it's Adam's sin, it's mine and your sins, but it's also others' sins. This is true about Bathsheba's story. She's feeling the pain of life, and it has nothing to do with her sin, but everything to do with David's sin. Do you realize today, one thing I don't want you to take from this story is just because you're enduring pain right now doesn't mean that you sinned. Bathsheba is a great example of this. It's just because pain comes in your life, even significant pain, it doesn't mean it's your fault. But sin is the cause of pain in our life. So we can't expect a life without pain, one, because of sin, but the second reason is a little more hidden. It's a little bit under the surface, but I think the second reason we don't, we don't expect life to be without pain is secondly because God didn't protect his son from pain. Jesus came to suffer. And if God didn't protect his son from pain, why would I imagine that he would protect me from pain? Ultimately, this is why we celebrate Christmas, isn't it? Not because there's this baby lying in a manger, but because of what this baby came, its purpose and its mission on our behalves. You see, Jesus didn't send his son to, to be worshiped and adorned, to be served. No, he sent his son to endure, to withstand, to take on the pain of our sins. In fact, this is what the Bible says, Mark chapter 10. It says, for even the son of man, did not come to be served, that's Jesus, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And if you study Jesus' life, you, you'll see there's pain there. And what we do is, as Christians is we often put the emphasis on the physical pain of, that Jesus endured. So when we, we talk about the pain of Jesus, we think of the, the nails in his hands and feet, the, the crown of thorns on his head. We, we think of the, the whipping that he took, the, the mockery, the insults, and we're like, man, that was pain. But the truth is, although I bet for Jesus that was significant, it didn't compare to one thing. 
It was the thing that Jesus never experienced until he was on the cross, because when he was on the cross with his arms spread wide, he cried out to his dad. He said, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, Jesus experienced, I believe, which was the most painful moment of his entire life. It was when he carried my sin and your sin, past, present, and future, on his shoulders, and he bore the weight of our guilt and our shame and our poor choices, and he cried out to his dad, where are you, dad? But his dad, in his holiness, God the Father couldn't look on his son because of his holiness, and so he carried our shame and our guilt and ultimately our sin on his shoulders. Because the truth is, is Jesus didn't suffer because of his sin, but because of ours. This baby didn't come because it did anything wrong, but because of we did. And here's the part about God that I'm not sure I fully understand. I mean, there's a lot of things about God that I don't think I fully understand. But this is the part of Christmas that, man, I'm not sure I'll ever get my head around because I'm a father. If you don't know, I have three kids at home. I have two daughters and one son. And and you, you, you can relate to this if you're a father or you're a mother or even as a grandparent. Like Ashley and I, my wife, we spend a good amount of our time planning and strategizing to protect our children. Like, I feel like that's my job as a dad is to protect my family above anything else. If I can't protect my kids, I feel like I failed as a dad. That is my job. That's my responsibility to care and watch over them as a father. And here's what I don't get about God. Is God the father chose to take his son out of heaven and to bring him to earth. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, by the way. And what he did was he was actually taking his son and putting him in harm's way. He was saying, son, hey, I'm gonna put you on the path, not to protection, but I'm gonna put you on the path of danger and pain because somebody else needs you. And as a dad, I just don't understand that. Because if you needed my kids to save you, I just, sorry. And if it was the reversed, I think you'd say the same thing to me. But yet God, on Christmas, what we celebrate, what we give gifts for, maybe was one of the hardest things he ever did was putting his son in danger's way to walk through pain. And the reason why we experience pain in life is because of our sin, people's sin, and Adam's sin, and because God put his son in in pain's journey. And here's here's what that means for all of us. It's because of what Jesus did and what he accomplished through his death and his resurrection. Here's where it gets good. Here's where the hope comes. Here's where we can get excited, although we're gonna experience pain. But because of the pain Jesus went through and his death on that cross and his resurrection and conquering the victory over death and sin, here's what that means for all of us is that evil ultimately loses. Evil ultimately loses, that's the good news. And even though sometimes it doesn't feel like that, you turn on the news station, you you read your newspaper, sometimes in life it doesn't feel like evil is losing. 
Man, you, you, you look at the news and you see the shootings all over our country. You're like, man, what has happened to people today? Evil exists everywhere and it doesn't feel like evil, evil is losing right now. But the truth is, is because of what Jesus did on that cross for my sins and your sins and because he didn't stay day, dead three, year, three days later, the truth is, is evil ultimately loses every time. Because the truth is, is I have a savior who brings me hope that no matter what I face in life, no matter what pain I endure, no matter what I go through, I can hang on to the hope of what Jesus accomplished for me. That's a great thing about lineages. Jesus' lineage, although it was messy, it produced perfection, or for us, it produced hope. And that's exactly what this series has been about. You've heard this every week and you're gonna hear it again. Because of Jesus, Because of who Jesus is and what he accomplished, here's what it means. Jesus gives hope to the hopeless. I bet you you've heard that point before. You've probably filled that blank in one or too many times. But that is the truth of Christmas. It is why we celebrate every December 25th, not because it's traditional, not because it's something our culture does. It's because our hope had arrived. And he arrived through the messiest of circumstances, through the craziest of stories, but through all of that, perfection was here. And so I've asked you this question two weeks in a row, and I'm gonna ask you this question again. Today, tomorrow, and in your future, if Christmas is about hope, do you have it? Think about that for a second. I've asked it two weeks in a row and let's, let's marinate, let's chew on it for a second. Do you have hope? What I discovered is maybe I'm asking the wrong question. Maybe the question today and tomorrow and in the future is not do you have hope because here's what I've come to realize is that all of us, at, we have hope. We do, we hope in something. But the question is, is it the right thing? You see, hope is just ultimately what you're banking on, what you're trusting in. You're trusting, you're hoping in something to provide, to sustain, to protect. You lean on it. That's what hope is. And I think all of us, the the answer to the question, do you have hope? I think we would all say, yes, I do. I mean, we use it in our everyday language. I'm hoping it doesn't rain today. Or I'm sorry, I'm hoping it doesn't snow today. (laughs) But I would maybe ask you a different question. Not do you have hope, but where have you placed your hope? You see, because I think for many of us, even Christians today, we hope in the wrong things. Some of you are hoping that a present under the tree this Christmas will help you get through a bad year. Some of you are hoping in your job to sustain you, to provide for you. Some of you are hoping in the house you live in, in the relationships that you have to make you feel like you're valuable in life. And I would dare to say you're hoping in the wrong thing. Because eventually, that job or that relationship will end, whether it's on good terms or bad. 
The money in your bank account eventually will run dry or you'll die and you won't have it anymore. And then what will you hope in? Then what will be your answer? You see, the reason why our hope is in Christmas is because Jesus is eternal. He's forever. And if I hope in him, it will never run dry. It will never let me down because it will always be there. And so Christians, we claim to hope in Jesus, but I think what happens for us a lot of times is we shift our hope to different things. We claim our hope is in Jesus, but maybe we've taken it and we've put it in other things. And maybe this Christmas, Jesus is just reminding us to shift that hope back to where it belongs. Or maybe today for you, who has never placed your hope in Jesus, maybe now's the time. Maybe this is the Christmas to shift our hope right to where it belongs. See, Isaiah says this is why we can hope. He says, because for to us, I love that line. Jesus didn't come on Christmas for himself. He came for each and every one of us. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So today I would ask you, not do you have hope, but are you hoping in the right thing? Where is your hope placed this Christmas? So if you would do me a favor, if you would just bow your head and close your eyes, I wanna give you an opportunity to put your hope and trust in Jesus. Whether that's for us as Christians to shift our hope back to him, or maybe for you today, it's simply to put your trust and hope in him for the first time. I think this happens simply through a prayer. It's not magical words but it's a belief and a surrender in your heart. And so if you would just say these words after me, God, I recognize that I am a sinner, that I have fallen short over and over again. And God, maybe my first sin is not hoping in you, not putting my trust in you. And so today, God, maybe for some of you, I'm, I'm reshifting my hope, or maybe today it's you who you're placing your hope in the hands of Jesus. You recognize I'm a sinner, God, but I believe through the pain that you endured on that cross and the victory you gave me through your resurrection, that you conquered my sin, and that if I believe in you, I will have hope. So God, today, I'm realigning, or God, today I'm putting my hope in your hands. Forgive me of my sin, and I'm turning away from it, God, today, and I wanna follow you for the rest of my life. Man, if you made that decision, I just challenge you to, to tell somebody. Whether you're a follower of Christ or not, you tell your wife, hey, I put my hope back in God this Christmas, or maybe you made it for the first time. You said, you know what? I'm following Jesus. Make sure you tell somebody. Let me pray for us. God, thank you. Thank you for Christmas. And how somehow, even in the midst of the chaos of presents and lights and trees and 
all the stuff that distracts us, God. May we be reminded that our hope is here. It's not some temporary hope. It's a hope that will never, ever fade. And may we cling to it this Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.